Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, Executive Producer. Today, we're bringing you an Acton Lecture Series event from December of 2016, featuring Ilya Shapiro speaking on judicial abdication and the growth of government. Ilya Shapiro is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. In this discussion, Shapiro recounts the fight for the Supreme Court during the 2016 presidential campaign and how that battle crystallized the importance of judges both having the right constitutional theories and being willing to enforce them. According to Shapiro, too much restraint— like Chief Justice Roberts in the Obamacare cases, has led to the unchecked growth of government, toxic judicial confirmation battles, and even our current populist moment. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. I've admired the Acton Institute for a long time. Uh, and Grand Rapids is my second time in this fair city. Uh, seems like a, a delightful place. Uh, I'm not sure I've been spoiled living in the Mid-Atlantic for the last uh, dozen or so years. Uh, even though I'm a Russian-Canadian, I, I don't know if I could handle your, your winters anymore, but it... Uh, it is a, a lovely place, and I just took in the, the Ford Museum yesterday, which is a really good, uh, uh, really interesting uh, space. Um, so I'm here to talk about uh, how judicial restraint, uh, which a lot of conservatives think uh, is the way that judges should act, leads actually to a decrease in the rule of law and a decrease in respect for institutions and therefore the rise of populism. I know my good friend Ben Dominich has spoken uh, about populism uh, recently here. Uh, I won't go into specifically the, the politics of it, but I want to focus on the relationship of the law and judicial action and uh, the role that that plays in uh, developing the sorts of political currents that we've seen of late in this country. Um, a president has few constitutional powers that are more important than making judicial appointments. Uh, after all, federal judges continue shaping our world long after the person uh, who appointed them has departed the White House. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia spent nearly 30 years on the Supreme Court uh, serving as uh, President Reagan's bridge to the 21st century for legal policy. Earlier this year, there was an important ruling uh, by a federal judge in California who had been appointed by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, this man is in his 90s and he's still very active, and you see uh, a lot of folks like that. So tax reforms, regulatory changes uh, can be all rolled back or, or amended, uh, but judges are for life. And indeed, uh, every president for a four-year term has the opportunity to appoint nearly uh, um, a fifth uh, of the judiciary. So for a two-year term, that's nearly 40 percent. That's very significant. Uh, president Obama, for example, when he started uh, one of only one of the 13 federal circuit courts of appeal uh, had a majority of Democratic uh, appointees. Now nine of them do. So elections have consequences. And as I said, uh, at least with domestic uh, issues, the judiciary is probably the paramount way in which a president has uh, uh, influence. If you want to learn more about that, I commend to you a book by my friend, Clint Bullock, who's a co-founder of the Institute for Justice, longtime constitutional litigator, and now a justice on the Arizona Supreme Court. He wrote a book called Twofer, about how when Americans vote for president, they also vote for uh, judges. And indeed, the Supreme Court now stands starkly split, four to four, on so many important issues. Uh, religious liberty, uh, political speech, uh, gun rights, uh, regulatory uh, affairs, so many things uh, that... Uh, especially of late, are decided five to four, uh, typically with Justice Kennedy having been the swing vote. If Hillary Clinton had been able to uh, appoint a progressive jurist, even a moderate one like Merrick Garland, so-called moderate, um, although votes 95% of the time the same way as the most radical, these priorities would have been all but defenseless. 
And we still have to be vigilant that uh, Donald Trump doesn't continue the appalling executive overreach that came to characterize the Obama administration. So every four years, legal pundits, we kind of jump up and down and make the case that voters should keep judicial nominations as a paramount concern. Uh, this election, I think, uh, finally, that was the case, galvanized by uh, this unique uh, situation with the, the, the untimely departure of, uh, of Justice Scalia. Many center-right observers, however, don't know how exactly they should think uh, or, or what this should mean for politicians they support when they think about judicial appointments. For decades, conservatives argued that the way to respond to so-called judicial activism which, by the way, means nothing other than the speaker doesn't like uh, the case or the judge that they're talking about. But the response to this uh, judicial activism was restraint. But well-meaning judicial restraint has increasingly led to failures to check the other branches of government, especially as the legislature passes sweeping laws of dubious constitutionality and the executive arrogates to itself uh, unilateral lawmaking uh, authority. This failure of the judiciary to check the other branches bears much of the blame for the public's frustration with the government. An appropriately engaged judiciary, one that sees itself as a co-equal partner uh, rather than uh, a junior branch, uh, is crucial to the rule of law and to the public's continued faith in the legitimacy of our constitutional system. In response to decades of judicial activism on the left, as I said, uh, conservatives adopted this theory of judicial restraint, which is ironic uh, because uh, this, uh, in this they were following the founders of the progressive legal movement, this idea that it's not the role of unelected judges to thwart the, 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 the popular will. Uh, people like uh, Harvard law professor James Bradley Thayer and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Thayer was a big deferentialist. It was based on his theories at the end of the 19th century that the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal. Not because Thayer was a racist, I have no idea what his thoughts were on racial issues, but because he thought that uh, he was extremely skeptical about judicial review. He disagreed with John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton, and as you see, I'm not cherry-picking the most libertarian of the founders, but they had a robust vision uh, of the judicial role, which uh, Thayer discounted, warning courts against judicial nullification, as he termed it. Not only should judges not question the other branches, but they should defer to their justifications for otherwise dubious actions. And Justice Holmes, who's lionized as this icon uh, of the courts, for me, is down there right with Roger Taney, the author of Dred Scott. He operationalized this deferentialist progressive theory most famously in his dissent in Lochner versus New York in 1905, uh, where the Supreme Court struck down a New York state law that limited the hours that bakers could work on, limited, on, uh, on economic liberty grounds. What actually went on there was a bit of crony capitalism. The established large corporate bakers didn't like the competition from the upstart entrepreneurial immigrant bakers, and so went to Albany and got a law uh, that would benefit them, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, and then, of course, Holmes' majority opinion in Buck v. Bell, the forced sterilization case that had the infamous statement, three generations of imbeciles are enough. To put a finer point on his desire to ratify popular impulses, he also famously wrote, if my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I will help them. Again, I don't see why we need judges if they're just supposed to be potted plants and just ratifying whatever the popular branches uh, uh, are doing. But this sort of deference, both to experts and to democracy, uh, is represented in modern times by Yale law professor Alexander Bickel. Uh, and as a Princeton and Chicago man, I'm delighted to be able to criticize Harvard and Yale uh, in this same presentation. But Bickel, who was tremendously influential on Robert Bork and the nascent conservative legal movement of the 60s and 70s, identified what he called uh, the judiciary's counter-majoritarian difficulty and its resolution by employing the passive virtues. That is, judicial review is problematic because it overrules legislators and thus the will of the majority, and so to avoid this illegitimacy as he saw it, judges should avoid resolving substantive issues, deciding not to decide as much as possible, and deferring to uh, legislatures and agencies, if at all possible. Uh, my boss, Roger Pallon, the founder of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, wrote a very prescient uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed in 1991. Uh, typically, op-eds have a shelf life of you know, a couple of days at best, but here this is still talked about 25 years later. Uh, but he encapsulated the response of those who were both 
uh, uneasy with the progressive rewriting of the Constitution, but we're also wary about this idea of restraint, seeing it as also originating uh, in the progressive era. Quote, conservatives and classical liberals alike, indeed anyone who favors limited government and a wide range of both personal and economic liberties, should be concerned when the third branch of government effectively withdraws from the scene. The dangers of popular tyranny were well known to the founders. They recognized the tendency of factions, whether majoritarian or special interest, to use government for their own ends, expanding the state in the process. It was for this reason that they drafted a written constitution and created an independent judiciary to interpret it a judiciary that was meant, as Madison put it, to be the bulwark of our liberties. How is the judiciary supposed to be the bulwark of our liberties if it simply defers uh, to the other branches? Uh, now, to be sure, an unrestrained judiciary that just makes it up as it goes along is no bulwark either. So the Borkian critique of uh, a certain kind of activism uh, was correct as far as it went. But it's no answer to the problem of how to secure ordered liberty to ask the judiciary to serve as a handmaiden uh, to the other branches. And so um, uh, Roger Pallon, uh, uh thought that Bork, uh, dealing with this deferentialist restraint school, had it exactly backwards. Rather than the first principle being that majorities uh, have the right to rule simply by virtue of being majorities, and then nonetheless there are certain things from which uh, individuals and minorities are protected uh, that majorities can't do to them, that gets it exactly backward. The Madisonian vision the framers' vision is one of a sea of liberty with islands of authority, with government policing the rules uh, of the game, not simply empowering uh, pure majoritarianism with certain exceptions. If the framers had wanted that sort of more democratic system, uh, they could have. Um, but of course, they put in a more republican system with checks and balances where the primary uh, goal is not democracy, but it's liberty. Um, as Pallon concluded, the judiciary then must not shirk its duty to secure rights by deferring to the political branches in the name of self-government. Rather, it must hold the acts of the other branches up to the light of strict constitutional scrutiny. Uh, the tide has been turning. These warnings uh, from 25 years ago were largely unheeded for a long time, but the tide has been turning. Even traditional conservatives have come around, such as George Will. Uh, and there's a lively debate that has made calls for judicial engagement or uh, an active, not an activist, but an active judiciary um, uh, commonplace at federal society meetings or among uh, conservative legal elites. Now, this argument isn't abstract or historical. Uh, I know uh, this isn't a, a group of uh, uh, lawyers or law professors I'm lecturing to. That's why I don't have to dumb down my remarks so much. Um, <laughs> The, the strongest case studies that show the trouble with restraint, uh, one big illustration that I want to give you, uh, have come in the Obama years. Uh, and this kind of uh, uh, best example is the Supreme Court's 2012 ruling in NFIB versus Sebelius, the, uh, the original uh, individual mandate Obamacare case. This case displayed an unfortunate convergence of two unholy strains of constitutional jurisprudence, liberal judicial activism and conservative judicial pacifism. Liberal activism finds no judicially administrable limits on federal power. Conservative passivism, which is a knee-jerk reaction uh, to that uh, activism, argues that we must defer to Congress and state legislatures as much as possible, presuming their legislation to be constitutional. Neither approach considers that the Constitution's structural provisions, federalism, separation of powers, etc., aren't simply a dry exercise in political theory, James Madison showing off how much he learned at Princeton, uh, but a means to protect the individual liberty against the concentrated power of popular majorities. So courts are charged with holding elected officials' feet to the constitutional fire and striking down laws that exceed the powers that have been granted to these agents by the people. Chief Justice Roberts had to rewrite two important parts of the Affordable Care Act to avoid overturning the law. Um, he tried to be the good conservative by masking his uh, efforts in a show of what he considered to be restraint and even modesty by merely tweaking, rewriting certain of Congress's words rather than uh, striking them down altogether. And I think he failed on his own terms. As the four justices wrote in a joint dissent, the court regards its strained statutory interpretation as judicial modesty. It is not. It amounts instead to a vast judicial overreaching. It creates a debilitated, inoperable version of health care regulation that Congress did not enact and the public does not expect. 
And so the Chief Justice's immodest passivism, combined with the activism of the four liberal judges, created the Frankenstein's monster that was NFIB. Now, to be sure, the decision was a win for constitutional jurisprudence in several ways that I've written about. Uh, the government can't compel activity in order to regulate it. The rulings on the necessary and proper clause, and especially on the spending clause, what kind of strings the federal government can tie uh, to the funding that it sends to the states. Those are very important rulings, and we're definitely better off than we were jurisprudentially uh, before uh, this case. Uh, but justifying the individual mandate to buy insurance under the taxing power doesn't rehabilitate the government's abuses. It merely creates what I call a unicorn tax, a creature of no known constitutional provenance that will never be seen again. And by letting Obamacare survive in such a dubious manner, uh, Roberts undermined the trust that people have that courts are impartial arbiters rather than political actors. I don't mean partisan political, but in terms of taking into account things that are not law. In short, liberal activism and conservative passivism suspended their tired debate or found common progressive cause long enough to agree on a decision that, while not without its bright spots, marked a dark day for the Constitution. And the sad thing is that the chief didn't have to do what he did to save the court. For one thing, Obamacare has always been unpopular, especially the individual mandate. For another, Roberts only damaged his own reputation by making this move after pundits and politicians warned that striking down the law would be conservative judicial activism. Now, I don't think that this sort of impolitic pressure uh, from everyone from President Obama to New York Times columnists had anything to do with his ultimate decision. But I think uh, the popular sentiment was that uh, it did. And most important, the reason we care about the court's independence is that so it can make the tough calls uh, and call those balls and strikes. Let the political chips fall where they may, as Roberts talked about at his confirmation hearings. Uh, had the court struck down Obamacare, it would simply have been the sort of thing for which the court needs all of its accrued gravitas. Instead, we have a strategic decision dressed up in legal robes judicially enacting a law that Congress would not have passed. Recall the 1966 film celebrating its 50th anniversary now. I don't know if it's part of your film series, but it should be, A, a Man for All Seasons, in which a young lawyer named Richard Rich perjures himself uh, so the Crown can secure Sir Thomas More's conviction. Rich is then promoted to Attorney General of Wales as a reward. On learning of Rich's connivance, Moore plaintively asks, why Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for whales? And so, in refraining from making that sort of balls and strikes call uh, that he discussed, uh, John Roberts sold out the law for less than whales, thereby showing why we don't want our judges playing politics. NFIB also showed the consequences of judges' gamesmanship in indulging those passive virtues. Uh, that uh, Professor Bickle uh, talked about. Roberts left the ball in the people's court, hoping that they would get rid of Obamacare for him, that they would do his job. It was up to the people to reign in the government whose unconstitutional actions had taken us to the brink of economic disaster and ruined our health care system. Uh, but they went a different way in the fall of 2012. Now, I don't want to overstate the extent to which the court is responsible for the direction uh, our politics has taken in this toxicity in, in, in this election year. There are many causes behind our populist moment. Uh, President Obama's excesses, the perfidious GOP elite, uh, the Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi nihilists, demographic shifts, globalization, you name it. There are lots of causes to where we are politically. I'm sure uh, Ben Dominich talked about them. Uh, but if one moment could be blamed for spawning this annus horribilis, if you will, this, this terrible uh, year that we've now lived, um, uh, it, it could well be Chief Justice Roberts' vindication of Obamacare in June 2012. Um, now, this isn't because his ruling uh, in that case, and then a couple of years ago in King versus Burwell, the statutory Obamacare case, allowed this hugely unpopular legislation to corrode our health care system and economy. Uh, it's because Roberts recognized that the law was unconstitutional and yet saved it out of a misbegotten devotion to restraint under the guise of deferring to the people. By refusing to follow his own logic, Roberts increased cynicism and anger at play-by-the-rules conservatives and decreased respect for institutions across the board. And moreover, the contortions required to justify the decision drove the constitutionalist Tea Partiers 
into the arms of the populists. Why bother with the Constitution? Even if you're right, you'll lose. But to lose in a wholly extra-legal way was a sucker punch, undermining the idea that there's a difference between law and politics and that the judiciary is a check on the excesses of the political branches. Roberts essentially told people not to bother the courts with big issues, that if you want to beat Obama, you need your own strongman, complete with pen and phone and contempt for the Constitution. So they did, bypassing several flavors of constitutional conservative in favor of rash populism. It's a shame and, and deeply ironic. If you remember in 2010, or even a year or two before that, uh, a constitutional moment had arrived. The people had risen up against crony capitalism, bailouts, out-of-control government. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was agreeing with the Tea Parties. You know, cats were sleeping with dogs, et cetera, et cetera. Gotten so bad. Real constitutionalists were sent to Congress. Massachusetts elected a Republican to Ted Kennedy's seat to stop Obamacare. Um, and the last domino, the White House, was poised to fall to a constitutionalist, too. Uh, with the most intellectually vibrant GOP primary field since Ronald Reagan ran unopposed for re-election in 84. But then Roberts, yeah. <laughs> but then Roberts ushered in the Trump tornado. Uh, constitutional conservatism simply couldn't survive judicial conservatism. The genteel Roberts and the vulgar Trump thus seemed to have one thing in common, a belief that judges should stop striking down laws and let political majorities rule. The constitutional moment thus expired on the shoals of Roberts's judicial restraint. Instead of teaching people that our Republican form of government works, we're left with the false empowerment of a self-consuming democracy. Judicial appointments weren't always so fraught. The increasing gamesmanship is often blamed on perversions of the confirmation process, demagogic rhetoric, and even the use of filibusters, but those are all symptoms of an underlying disease, part and parcel of a much larger problem, constitutional corruption that proponents of judicial restraint have aided and abetted. As government has grown, so have laws and regulations. All of a sudden, judges are deferring to Congress and the executive branch on what they can do with their great powers. This is a new development. Under the Founders' Constitution, the Supreme Court hardly ever had to strike down a law. If you look at the congressional record in the 18th and 19th centuries, the debates were over whether uh, Congress had the power to do something, not whether it was a good idea. In 1887, Grover Cleveland vetoed an appropriation of $10,000 for seeds to drought-stricken Texas farmers because he could find uh, no constitutional warrant for such action. And there was a stable system of rights that went beyond those listed in the Bill of Rights to those retained by the people under the Ninth uh, Amendment. But deferentialist judges played their part in changing all that. The idea that the general welfare clause, there's a part of the Constitution that says that everything Congress does has to be for the general welfare, that was supposed to be a limitation. It meant that Congress couldn't act simply for the regional or parochial or, or, or local uh, interest. It had to be for the national uh, interest. But in the progressive era and, and when the Supreme Court started ratifying these sorts of actions in the late 30s and, and, and 40s, general welfare became seen as anything that you can get a majority uh, in Congress uh, to sign. And so it's the New Deal court that politicized the Constitution and uh, laid the foundation for judicial mischief uh, of every stripe. In that light, recent confirmation battles, whether the hyperbole regarding Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas, who's now celebrating his 25th year uh, on the court, the filibustering of George W. Bush's lower court nominees, or the scrutiny of Sonia Sotomayor's wise Latina comment. Uh, these are all a logical response to political incentives. When judges act as super legislators, then the senators, the media, and the public want to scrutinize their ideologies and treat them as if they were super politicians with lifetime tenure, and rightfully so. Uh, this isn't the old back and forth between activism and restraint. So long as we accept that judicial review is constitutional and appropriate in the first place, and again, you can't really have checks and balances without it, uh, then we should only be concerned that the court get it right, regardless of whether that correct interpretation leads to the challenge law being upheld or overturned. The dividing line isn't between activism and passivism, but between legitimate and vigorous judicial engagement and illegitimate judicial imperialism. Ultimately, judicial power is not a means to an end. 
be it liberal or conservative, but instead an enforcement mechanism for the strictures of the founding document. We have a republic with a constitutional structure meant uh, just as much to curtail the excesses of democracy as to empower it. Any other perspective on the judicial role leads to the sort of judicial abdication and the loss of those very rights and liberties that can only be vindicated through the judicial process that by definition is counter-majoritarian. Four years have now passed since Chief Justice Roberts made uh, Obamacare's individual mandate into a tax to save the law that created it. By recognizing that Obamacare was unconstitutional but shying away from ruling that way, Roberts struck a blow not only against sound jurisprudence and the rule of law, but against the legitimacy of our government altogether. Eight justices decided the case based on competing legal theories, four finding that the Constitution limits federal power, four that the Constitution uh, allows ever-expanding power to fit national needs, but the ninth justice had other concerns on his mind. And the regrettable inference is that for a combination of faux judicial restraint and a desire to protect the court's reputation, Roberts decided that he needed to uphold the law without expanding federal power. He succeeded in squaring that circle, but we're left with a bizarre ruling that postulates a tax on inactivity, a piece of legislation, as I said, that no Congress would have enacted. It's no wonder that the populace is frustrated and believes that the system is rigged. If law is irrelevant, then the only thing to do is force your way through with small-d democracy. Benjamin Franklin admonished that we have a republic if we can keep it. Well, 229 years is a pretty good run. Randy Barnett, who was the intellectual godfather of the Obamacare litigation, uh, law professor at Georgetown, summed up the situation at Cato's Constitution Day conference four years ago, and I think his words still ring true. Quote, should Republican presidents continue to nominate judicial conservatives who are enthralled with New Dealer's mantra of judicial restraint, or should Republican presidents nominate constitutional conservatives who believe that it's not activism for judges to be engaged in enforcing the whole Constitution? For over two years, our nation was given a great lesson on constitutional law, that the enumerated powers are limits Congress cannot exceed. In June, the electorate was given a different lesson in judicial philosophy. Judicial restraint in enforcing those limits is no virtue. So if we want the rule of law, we need judges to interpret the Constitution faithfully and strike down laws when government exceeds its authority. Depoliticizing the judiciary is a laudable goal, but that'll only happen when judges go back to judging rather than merely ratifying the excesses of the other branches. Until that time, I think it's absolutely appropriate to uh, use confirmation hearings and elections to question judicial philosophies and theories of interpretation and vote accordingly, whether you're a, a voter or a citizen, uh, whether you're a senator or a citizen. Uh, regardless of whom Donald Trump nominates to the Supreme Court, the battle for the third branch will continue. Conservatives should learn their lessons and push for judges possessed not only of the right interpretive theories and principles, but of the courage of their convictions, the desire to follow those principles wherever they lead. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya, very much. Um, we've allowed ample amount of time for questions, um, so we've got about 30 minutes until about 1 o'clock. So my colleague Dan will be on this side of the room, and I'll be over here. Just simply raise your hand and then speak right into the top of the mic. What, um, Jim Mitchell, um, what is it about uh, Trump's uh, something he said or uh, done that uh, lead you to believe that he is in the camp that uh, wants to discourage the Supreme Court from overturning uh, unconstitutional legislation? Well, Trump's list of judges is actually very, very good. Uh, it's probably about the same sort of list that, that I would have put out if asked. Um, certainly assuaged the concerns of a lot of conservative legal elites. And so if those are indeed the types of judges that he'll be appointing, uh, I'm very confident that his first appointment for the Scalia seat will be from that list, which is, as I said, uh, I've started looking through, and it's hard to review the body of work of all of those people. There's 21 on the list, but I haven't seen any red flags yet, so I'm not concerned about that first pick. But there are certain things that he's talked about, whether with respect to the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, uh, in terms of no fly, no buy, uh, uh, whether with respect to uh, eminent domain, uh, uses of executive authority in various ways. I mean, we'll, we'll just have to see. 
if he acts in certain ways that, uh, that concerned um, constitutionalists uh, about uh, during his campaign, uh, then yet appoints judges uh, of the kind that are on his list, then he'll find that judges will start striking down some of his actions. And then perhaps uh, he will uh, take notice and, and, and do something differently. Because this, obviously, uh, uh, the law, uh, uh, constitutional jurisprudence, is not, has not ever been his area of focus. He's, uh, so far, based on what we see, he relies on very good advisors, uh, some of whom are my friends. Uh, and that's great. Um, and, and I hope it continues. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I will not hesitate to criticize him if he does something that I think is anti-constitutional. And I will not hesitate to commend him if he does something that I think is, uh, uh, gets us back into the, into the right stream. Um, do you think Justice Roberts has any regrets over his affordable care decision? And did he give thought to how this would be interpreted and affect the courts? Um, I don't think I've ever met Roberts personally. I've met several of the others. Um, I think what he, what he did is um, part and parcel of uh, kind of his judicial, not philosophy, but the, the way he thinks about the role of a judge. Because what I'm really getting at, again, is, isn't that uh, we have to have judges with, you know, who agree on the right uh, uh, way to interpret a constitution. Um, but who see the judicial role uh, as not being minimalist, like Roberts likes to say, or modest. I mean, it's not to be maximalist and immodest. It's just to you know, judge, and then we can evaluate whether their theories are, are correct or not. And Roberts, for example, has never been a member of the Federalist Society, uh, unlike, which is the gr national group of conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students, um, unlike Alito, Scalia, um, and Thomas. Uh, and so... Uh, I think that you know he's doing uh, his best, especially as Chief Justice, with his model being uh, the great chief, John Marshall, um, of trying to reconcile the court and trying to move it uh, uh, not in broad strokes, but, uh, uh, but in short steps. Um, and in cases that he's really attacked by the left on, like Citizens United or Shelby County, uh, certain other uh, areas, he's sort of been boxed into a corner where incrementally the court has moved in a certain direction while giving caution to Congress to say to, well, he himself has written, fix this Congress, and it hasn't for whatever reasons, and then finally uh, the law has to fall. So uh, he's very much an incrementalist and a minimalist, and I don't think um, whether, you know, just speculation, but uh, I don't think he second-guesses himself. He certainly had a lot of time to... Uh, think about both of his decisions. And you know, he did essentially the same thing in the statutory case, King v. Burwell, two years later. Um, so you know, he's, he, he'd had time to, to ponder it some more. And, and make no mistake, I'm not saying that John Roberts is like a David Souter or a John Paul Stevens or other Republican nominees who so-called grew or evolved in office and moved left. No one can accuse John Roberts of being uh, a progressive uh, in, in that sense of the, of the term or, or, or a liberal in that way, indeed. Other than those two cases, the two Obamacare cases, you know, I can quibble with him on how, how, how far he went in ruling in certain areas where Scalia or Thomas would write a concurrence that sounds like a dissent, but it's really just saying, Roberts, you have to go farther. Uh, but uh, you know, there's no indication that uh, you know, he has or, or moved left. But conservatives, as I said, are, are learning a lesson that it's not simply a matter of appointing uh, party loyalists or people who have conservative bona fides generally. Um, but, uh, you know, what are the thoughts on the role of the judge is, is so important. Uh, you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Um, I seem to remember that he was so frustrated that he had taken some kind of actions to try to remove justices from the Supreme Court. Did he have any success in that? Was there any... Um, kind of agenda he laid that uh, tried to scare justices into thinking they could be actually removed? Well, he actually tried to pack the court. He tried to add extra justices for all the justices that were there who were over age 70. He wanted to appoint an extra one. Uh, and uh, uh, Congress can change the number of Supreme Court justices with a statute. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. Term limits or certain other things might require a constitutional amendment. But changing the number of the court the size of the court, historically, it's, it's ranged from 6 to 10. Uh, and so he wanted it to go up to, uh, 
I think it will, as I said, to appoint an extra justice for each one who was over 70. Um, I think that would have put the court at 15 at the time or something like that. He was unsuccessful in getting that through Congress. Um, the story is, the general narrative is, that the Supreme Court at that point, having struck down for four years uh, the early part of the New Deal, got the message, was intimidated, and had what's called a switch in time that saved nine. Justice Roberts, again, Owen Roberts, uh, uh, who had been voting to strike down, all of a sudden started voting to uphold New Deal legislation. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of intimidation. Uh, in fact, uh, some papers have come out that Roberts uh, had decided to, uh, in, a, in a key 1937 case, to switch his vote already even before uh, the court packing scheme. Uh, I guess seeing the writing on the wall or kind of this, you can only uh, go against popular will for so long. The Supreme Court historically tries to not to get too far ahead or behind uh, uh, popular opinion as a means of uh, maintaining its, its integrity. Um, uh, but uh, FDR, his whole project was effectively amending the Constitution without amending the Constitution, whether that means pressuring the court uh, or just uh, ramming through legislation. There's a famous letter to the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee where he wrote, don't let any concerns about the constitutionality of the legislative package, no matter how uh, well, uh, well-meaning, uh, deter you from voting for it. And so uh, the New Dealers knew what they were doing, uh, and for whatever reason, um, uh, they decided not to pursue a uh, constitutional amendment and to just uh, use their supermajorities in Congress to, uh, I don't know whether it's intimidate the court or just uh, uh, you know, get the restrained court, as it were, to go along. I'm wondering about your thoughts um, with regard to the decisions that Justice Roberts made. Did those decisions help roll out the carpet, uh, the red carpet, for uh, all of the executive orders that came down the road later on? Uh, did it make it easier for, um, were there fewer folks willing to challenge executive orders, et cetera, et cetera because of, of Justice Roberts' uh, earlier decisions? I don't think so. Um, and indeed, the courts have been pretty good about stopping certain regulations and executive actions, whether on uh, in environmental cases with the Clean Power Plan or with uh, the immigration action, certain other things. I mean, they can't catch them all. Um, but uh, it did stop uh, fundamental challenges to Obamacare. Uh, and again, not simply the constitutionality of it, but how it was implemented. It's government by blog post in certain cases, uh, or guidance letters that seem to be facially against what the uh, what the law said, things like this. The, you know, the the story of the implementation of Obamacare is uh, even more hoary than um, uh, than the constitutional stuff that I that I had just talked about. And I commend to you Josh Blackman's book, uh, Unraveled, uh, about the debates over religious liberty and the uh, the statutory case King v. Burwell. Uh, his first book was unprecedented about the uh, the constitutional case NFIB, but then. After that, this story of uh, of how the implementation has worked, there are still cases pending uh, about payoffs to insurers that aren't provided for by Congress, uh, other certain things about implementation, um, and indeed uh, one of them is uh, House versus Burwell that's now pending. Actually, motions been filed to uh, hold the case in abeyance, paying the new pending the new administration that would presumably rescind some of these illegal, illegal actions. My wife today uh, is starting her new job as uh, assistant general counsel to the House, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I'm sure she won't tell me the, the nitty-gritty of it, uh, but that case might go away. That, that's one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the lessons of the election and of the Obama executive actions. Uh, if you live by executive action, you die by executive action. And so on day one, there's a whole host of things that President Trump can, can and should rescind. Other things that will have to go through formal rulemaking uh, to do so, it will take a little longer. Uh, but to the extent there are midnight regulations, what are called, which is basically things that happen in the last few months of the administration, there's a uh, Congressional Review Act, which allows both houses of Congress, by simple majority vote, not subject to filibuster, to rescind these midnight regulations. So I think we might see some action on that. Yeah. Uh, as Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid abolished the filibuster, uh, on judicial appointments, but purported to carve out an exception for the Supreme Court. And I was wondering what you thought may happen or think may happen uh, if President Trump appoints a Republican 
uh, well, a conservative to the Supreme Court and the Democrats attempt to filibuster it in the Senate, uh, will the Republicans recognize a filibuster or will they just go ahead and vote them through on a majority? I had a piece in The Federalist earlier this week right on, on this point. Uh, I think they titled it, uh, Mitch McConnell should abolish the filibuster or something like that. Um, so that gives you the, my, my, my overall conclusion. But uh, look, the whole issue of judicial filibusters, I think, I think they're sorted uh, and, and unseemly. Um, they weren't used. There was one time in history, the, the first time in 1968, where uh, uh, President Johnson tried to elevate Abe Fortas, who was a justice already, to chief justice. But there were some ethical issues, and there was a bipartisan filibuster that stopped that uh, appointment. It was highly unusual and controversial, even though it was uh, bipartisan. Uh, and then we didn't have anything until Harry Reid, until the, the Democrats uh, became part of the minority uh, in the Senate in 2003, uh, where they led a series of filibusters of a whole host of President Bush's excellent uh, nominees, most notably Miguel Estrada, who was filibustered because he was Hispanic, and the Democrats feared that that would allow President Bush eventually to uh, appoint the first Hispanic uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, a really uh, uh, dark, uh, uh, nasty period of our politics. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, eventually, two years later, there was the Gang of 14 that agreed uh, to prevent, uh, to keep the filibuster, but some of these judges would be confirmed. I think it was a failure of uh, Bill Frist's leadership uh, not to... Uh, get that taken care of a, a, a different way. But a decade later, Harry Reid did eventually, when the shoe was on the other foot, exercise the nuclear option and got rid of filibusters for lower court judicial nominees and all executive nominees. Uh, look, uh, the question isn't about Mitch McConnell. I think he's proven that he has the spine for these sorts of political fights by uh, uh, maintaining the no hearings, no votes posture uh, on Merrick Garland. Unusual situation. I, I agreed with that. And it was surprising because... You uh, don't normally make a lot of money betting on uh, Republican senators having spines of steel. But nevertheless, that held up. Um, if there's a solid uh, nominee from Trump's list who is filibustered, then um, it won't, as I said, depend on McConnell so much as you know the Rep Republicans will only have 52 senators. So it'll only take a Jeff Flake and a Lindsey Graham and a Susan Collins who have all been on the record saying they're, they're not necessarily on board with getting rid of the filibuster. But we'll see what happens. The Democrats might not filibuster in the first place because in 2018 they face a very unfavorable, probably even more unfavorable Senate map than what the Republicans face this year. Uh, and so uh, some of the vulnerable Republic, uh, Democrats in, uh, in red or purple states uh, might say, no, we don't want to filibuster these justices. Just uh, we'll vote against them or whatever, but let's not make this a, a, a big case. But we'll see. I, I, you know, I would rather... Uh, fill, this last bit of judicial filibuster get eliminated as well, which would ironically get us back to the status quo ante and, and reassert Senate tradition on these things. Hi. Um, my question is, Congress has the enumerator, can pass laws under the enumerated powers that were given to it under the Constitution. But it seems to me, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, that pretty much Congress can pass any law it wants to. And the judges will let it go. And it seems to me that you're saying that's judicial activism to allow that, the judges allowing Congress to pass whatever law they feel like it. And in my imagination, that's just the de facto way it's been for a couple generations at least. Maybe I'm wrong. And it sounds like you're saying that there's a possibility that Congress is going to have some limitations on its power imposed on it by the courts. And I'm curious if I'm hearing you right, is there, a, is there any practical like realistic view that incoming judges will in fact like enforce the Commerce Clause and put a real limitation on Congress's power? Um, it's a very good question. I mean, it, it took us more than 70 years uh, to get to where we are. As I said, 1937, uh, the, the Constitutional Revolution, we point to that point where the, uh, where the Supreme Court started uh, codifying uh, the, progressive, uh, the progressive era. Um, courts aren't self-starting institutions, so it's not like the Supreme Court or a district court can simply reach out to a program and, and start striking it down. 
Um, the Supreme Court had the opportunity in 2005 uh, to rein in the Commerce Clause, the, the Congress's enumerated power to regulate interstate commerce. Uh, that case, Raich versus Gonzalez, was in the context of medicinal marijuana and posed the question of whether the federal government can regulate or ban plants that you grow in your own backyard for your own consumption, and they answered yes, uh, because it was part of interstate commerce in marijuana. Or Justice Scalia concurring, I think this is one area where he allowed uh, the drug war to triumph over federalism, he concurred not that it was interstate commerce, but it was that it was necessary to regulate this as, as part of that larger scheme, so under the necessary and proper clause. Anyway, to get into the weeds, as it were. Um, <laughs> But that came in the series of, that was kind of like the end of a, uh, was supposed to be a federalism revolution under the Rehnquist court. It ended up turning out to be a, a failed rebellion, really, because in 95 and 2000, in a couple of cases called Lopez and Morrison, um, the court did strike down for the first time since the 30s uh, an act of Congress on federalism grounds, on exceeding the, the commerce power. Um, and so uh, there was hope that uh, there would be more pushback, but Raich put an end to that. NFIB, to its credit, drew a line under Raich, saying this far and no more in terms of commerce. You can't create commerce uh, or force someone to engage in commerce and then regulate them. Uh, and indeed, there was pushback. Uh, we're better off uh, on the necessary and proper clause on something can be necessary to a larger scheme, but still improper to force someone to do something. And as I said, on the spending clause and, and other things like that. So that was actually, you know, we're stuck with, with Obamacare, but uh, uh, jurisprudentially that case was uh, some pushback. Uh, so uh, that was uh, uh, Roberts's twistification to, to, to make that compromise. Um, you know, it will take a while, and it, will, it doesn't necessarily have to start with judges. Uh, it can start with Congress saying, uh, you know, this is a good idea, but we have constitutional doubts about this, and people publicly voting against something saying this is a good idea, but I, I don't think we have the power to do this. That hasn't happened in quite some time. Um, another thing, not necessarily about curtailing Congress's power, but about curtailing federal power, is ironically to, for Congress to take back more power. Not generally to grow the government, but to take back to rebalance powers from the executive branch, from the agencies. Mike Lee, senator from Utah, who's on Trump's list, uh, has launched uh, what he calls the Article I project. That is, rather than having these broad pieces of legislation that allow executive agencies to fill in the blanks, which is essentially writing the entire law, uh, Congress uh, should be more specific and should actually legislate these things. Why they haven't been is because they want to pass the buck. So they passed the uh, Goodness, Truth, and Beauty Act of 2016, which is all great things, and then some agency issues a regulation that's, you know, that hurts someone, and then that person in the national media is upset at the agency rather than at the congressman who says, but I didn't vote for that. I voted for Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. That's that terrible agency. Well, that's a dereliction of your duty of delegating your legislative power. So reining in the executive agencies by Congress taking more powers for itself, I think, is concomitant with Congress staying within its uh, regulatory authority, because then it will have to justify uh, those pieces of legislation that might be uh, questionable. You think that uh, the problem you're addressing arises in part from the fact that there are really two different kinds of conservatives. There's the kind of conservative, the classic conservative who, for example, would be reluctant to overturn Roe versus Wade because of deference to precedent, whereas there's another type of conservative that I think I am a, what I think is a classic liberal, actually, limited government, free speech, free trade, um, who would overturn, vote to overturn Roe v. Wade because it was wrong. There's some of that, and you see that in the difference between Justice Scalia and Thomas. Um, what, what you're talking about, respect for precedent, lawyers call that stare decisis. That is, you leave wrong decisions in place, wrong rulings in place, uh, because there's been a whole uh, lot of reliance built up around that, that the social infrastructure, if you will, has already uh, accepted that decision and reversing it at this point would d disrupt society and cause more harm than getting that original ruling right in the first place. That's a related issue to what I'm talking about. It's certainly part and parcel with uh, a view of the, the Roberts view of minimalism and, and, and things like that. Uh, but it depends on the sort of case, and it depends how you balance the factors that go into uh, considerations of how much you should defer to precedent. So even Thomas isn't an absolute 
you know, there's no such thing as stare decisis. It's all bad. We should correct all rulings. Uh, but he says, uh, for example, uh, rulings that are unworkable um, or that uh, continue, you know, the, the reliance now creates perversions that can be righted or things like that. We really need to, um, we need to look at that. Or perhaps uh, we don't overturn the entire administrative state in one fell swoop, but we start chipping away at it. Uh, whereas Roberts would rather, and even Scalia, although he was moving more towards Thomas in his later years in terms of deference to administrative agencies, whereas Roberts would say, no, let's just keep what we have and decide each case for its merits and maybe strike down little things but not roll back what we, what we already have. Leave that uh, job to the political branches. Um, Roe v. Wade is a, or abort, the issue of abortion is an interesting issue because um, yes, there's reliance on, on a certain amount of legal architecture, but then uh, obviously any given pregnancy is by definition time limited. Uh, and so if you have different rules in place, people will react to them differently without um, uh, necessarily overturning uh, the apple cart for, for practical purposes. And for practical purposes, if uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey were overturned, that's the the standard now for, for, for abortion jurisprudence, not Roe v. Wade. Um, it kind of gets into complicated things. But, but regardless, you might see um, at most five states that would ban abortion altogether, uh, some more that would have a few restrictions. But uh, for most of the country, I don't think you'd really see uh, a difference. Uh, and um, you know, you'd have a, a more vigorous political debate in the states, um, which I think would be healthy. Uh, but Something like Roe v. Wade, I think, is different than something like the administrative state uh, on which there's this whole institutional artifice that's built, whereas on, on abortion, it's more, more a matter of politics uh, than it is of, of institutions. Is it constitutional to have administrative law courts? I don't think so. I don't think so. At least not uh, if uh, Article 3... Federal judicial, federal judges, unless they have full plenary review of those decisions by the administrative agencies, uh, I don't think that's constitutional. There's a, an important uh, legal challenge uh, uh, at play now involving uh, the SEC's uh, uh, regulatory courts. Because just so everyone understands, administrative law courts, these are employees of the executive agencies um, that are um, the fact finders, uh, the judges, the juries, and the enforcers um, of uh, controversies involving those agencies. So there's an obvious conflict that uh, someone who's employed by the agency is making a judgment in a case uh, that someone wants to bring uh, against, against that agency. Uh, it's, uh, so these are Article I judges, if you want to get technical, rather than uh, Article Three. Uh, or even there are the Article II judges, I suppose, if they're in an executive agency, rather than Article III. And so, um, uh, yeah, we've seen some pushback in the courts to some of the uh, excesses of this sort of self-dealing where you have uh, uh, quasi-judicial decision-making by these uh, all-powerful, in a very narrow area, actors. Okay. Do you, do you draw a distinction um, between... The federalism issues, the questions uh, whether Congress is overstepping its, its power under under Article One, uh, and things like individual rights, particularly um, substantive due process, where the court it says there's substance to to uh, procedural uh, safeguards, um, or would you say that certainly you could you could rely on something like substantive due process to 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 discern rights and, 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 and to limit uh, the power of Congress or the states and their police power. In particular, um, one I think I find interesting is Article 4, I think Section 4, has the guarantee of the Republican form of government. I don't think it's ever been litigated, um, but I think we could discern what the Republican form of government is not, and and I think uh, some of the stuff in the uh, with the administrative regulations probably would would violate that. Would you say, yes, that's an active clause. We can use, the courts can use that to shape what they discern to be the Republican form of government. 
Sometimes when people ask me questions about constitutional text, I actually like to look at the constitutional text. I'm a bit of a radical in that way. Um, and so what he was referring to, it says, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against uh, invasion. Um, so that does get litigated from time to time about the states. Okay, this isn't about the federal government being a republic. This is about the states, uh, the federal government being responsible for making sure that the states don't have, you know, their own little dictators or, or um, just pure democracy or what, what have you. It does get litigated. In fact, um, in Colorado, there was a case that I was involved in that, that Cato was filing amicus briefs in about the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and whether you can have limitations on the, ta the state taxing power based on popular initiative, um, where certain members of the state legislature were suing the governor all Democrats, the governor of Hickenlooper, you know, but uh, uh, about uh, you know whether their hands can be tied by popular initiative, whether that violates the uh, the um, uh, Republican uh, guarantee clause. Ultimately, that was tossed on standing grounds because it was basically the 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 losers in the in the legislative vote trying to relitigate something that they lost in, in the legislature. But but anyway, um, the, in narrow cases there is some precedent on the guarantee clause. Typically, challenges brought under it are not sustained uh, because people just try to make out of it uh, you know, something. I guess again, get a second bite at the apple after having lost through the political process. But um, but you know, I think all clauses of the Constitution should be used and 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 litigated with. And so anyone who wants to. Uh, try to create innovative uh, um, um, precedent by, by invoking the guarantee clause. Uh, I'd, I'd look at those uh, sorts of cases. Now, your question about substantive due process, um, the reason why we have this weird debate about it, I mean, first of all, there is there has to be some substance to due process in the sense that uh, the due process clause says that you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Well, if you have a well-functioning, transparent kangaroo court um, that, you know, perfect process, but that lacks a certain substance. It doesn't protect your rights. So there has to be some substance. It has to be due process of law, not of random arbitrariness. Okay? So in that sense, there has to be some substance. But the reason why we talk about substantive due process in terms of substantive rights, natural rights, or whatever, uh, whatever rights uh, you can find five votes on the Supreme Court for, uh, is because of a grave error that the Supreme Court made in 1873, five years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. The 14th Amendment did what some people say uh, call uh, the perfection of the Constitution or the completion of the Constitution in the sense that after the, before the Civil War, states could violate individual rights willy-nilly. The federal government, federal courts had no say over that. With the ratification of the 14th Amendment, you were now protected against the states violating your rights as well. Uh, the right to equal protection, uh, the right to due process of law, as I just described, and the substantive one was supposed to be uh, the privileges or immunities uh, of citizenship. Uh, and privileges or immunities is 19th century speak for natural rights. Uh, it's kind of a catch-all, kind of like the Ninth Amendment is for the federal government, for, for rights against the federal government. But as I said, in 1873, a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, the Supreme Court essentially eviscerated that. The, the Reconstruction Era Court wanted to give the states more power. Uh, and one of the first things the states did was to disarm uh, freed blacks and uh, Union sympathizers in the South. So the right to bear arms is actually stronger under the 14th Amendment than it is under the Second. Uh, because the 14th Amendment isn't supposed to simply incorporate the Bill of Rights as we have come to understand it. Um, starting in the 1920s with the First Amendment and uh, over the succeeding decades with most of the rest of the Bill of Rights, the court has what's called incorporate the Bill of Rights, the, the clauses in the Bill of Rights, against the states, which is a constitutional malapropism. If the framers of this 14th Amendment had wanted to simply say the First and Second Amendment now apply against the states, they could have said that. They didn't. Um, and so the 14th Amendment substantively is meant to protect both more and less uh, what the Bill of Rights does uh, as against the states. And then we would be arguing about the meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause based on the ratification debates in 1868, based on well, there's other things. I've written an article about this called Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed. Um, you know, a lot of conservatives are concerned that if we open up the Privileges or Immunities Clause, then all of a sudden there will be mandated uh, 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 
polygamous uh, 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 gay marriages in federal post offices where you have to smoke marijuana as part of the service or something like that. Uh, my response is that it cannot be worse than what we do under substantive due process, which is not textually bound in any way and is basically whatever five uh, judges uh, vote or think that a, that a fun, so-called fundamental right uh, might be. And so in the case of McDonald versus City of Chicago in 2010, when the Second Amendment was being extended uh, to the states, uh, unfortunately, four justices, uh, including Scalia, who was a big critic of substantive due process, said that no, the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms is also in that substantive due process, and it was left to Justice Thomas to say no, that's BS. It's the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and he brought up all of that uh, sort of uh, history. So one of the, you know, in addition to the power side of things with the Commerce Clause and other things, on the right side, uh, what it would take to return to the original meaning of the Constitution is to do originalism at the right time with the 1868-14th Amendment and understand that our rights are based there, not in terms of constantly evolving whatever quote-unquote fundamental uh, right might be. Ladies, Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Ilya.